say, all right, let me ask you this. Do you think that God, that if we hadn't had this conversation right now, but we had both started having conversations with other people here, do you think God knows what we would have been talking about with those other people? And 99% of the time, they're going to say, well, yeah, of course God would know that. Okay, you're a Molinist. Hi, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and today we have an awesome special guest for us today. We have Dr. Braxton Hunter with us today with Trinity Radio and uh, Trinity Seminary. You know that you said a very long, complicated thing earlier, and I was like, is that what it's called? Okay. But uh, anyway, um, I'm very privileged to have him on here. I'm very excited to have an interaction with him. For those of you guys who don't know, he's a, he's a he does a lot of apologetics on YouTube. He does, talks theology on YouTube, uh, and he also just happens to be a teacher and whatnot, very areas. So very great, friendly guy. So anyway, what's up, Braxton? How you doing? <laughs> hey, man. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. No, thank you for being here. It's a ton of fun. I know we've been chatting for probably about 30 minutes before this, but it's cool. I'd like to get to know you beforehand. So uh, y'all just jumped in the middle of a conversation. But anyway, um, so uh, I, I just wanted to have you on here to just kind of get a chance for people to get to know you personally, because I, we see a lot of your work. And though you discuss some of the things of your past history and things that you, you know, uh, things that you think and whatnot and things of experience, I think it'd be a cool time for you just kind of present some of the basic things that I think that would be interesting to know about you. I'm sure there's a lot of things about you that would be interesting, uh, or maybe not. Maybe you think yourself you're as boring as I am because I really am a boring dude. But uh, anyway, so uh, Braxton, would you just quickly just, could you go ahead and explain to everyone what your background is, you know, how are you raised and all that good stuff, and you know, what brought you to accept Christ and all that good jazz? Sure. So it is kind of a boring testimony. Uh, I don't think any testimony is boring or should be, but uh, I, I never was like addicted to crack or anything like that. Um, I, I, get, I became a Christian at, uh, I think, uh, five or six years old. And believe it or not, I really believe that that's when it happened. And uh, I was talking with my dad. My dad was a pastor of a mega church in Jacksonville, Florida, North Jacksonville Baptist Church. And so it was natural that I'd be asking these questions, hearing that conversation all the time. And one Sunday morning, I told him, I said, I, I want to I be a Christian. I want to know that I'm serving the Lord, and, and, and I, I want to know that, that I, if I die, I know where I'm going. You know, all, all the, and so, he, so I prayed my own prayer to receive Christ right there, repenting of my sins, trusting in the Lord. And that very day, was baptized. My dad baptized me there. And um, so, so that's, you know, that was my testimony. Now, later on, you know, it's when, when you're that young, before you have some good sinning under your belt, um, you, you, don't, you don't really know what that hardcore conviction of the Holy Spirit feels like. And so later on, when I was in my early teens and I did experience that, I think I, I probably prayed to receive Christ again, but I still believe that uh, my salvation experience was at that younger age. And so uh, my dad was, as I said, a megachurch pastor. I grew up in that context. And then when I was 10 years old, uh, he went into full-time evangelism, traveling, doing old-school revivals, preaching, and sometimes under tents. And so I had that whole kind of uh, piece of what is now fading Americana, really. And and then, uh, so it was natural that, that when I was about 17 years old, as I think you said you were, I was about 17 years old. I surrendered to the gospel ministry. I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And actually, it was kind of a bittersweet moment because I had planned to become a rock star. And so 
um, when I, the night that I surrendered to preach, the night that I surrendered to the gospel, it was bittersweet because I was like, wait a minute, I was going to be Bono and now I'm going to be like wanting to be like Billy Graham's my, my big guy I want to be like. So, um, so that was, that was interesting. But then I went on to go to undergrad at Middle State University. I've been a youth pastor, uh, for, uh, uh, about a year and that's all it took for me to realize that. Um, I don't think I'm supposed to be a youth pastor. Uh, too many problems that seem like the ones that would come up on MTV's The Real World, and it's just not my thing. And so I went on to uh, pastor a church at 20 years old, probably too young to pastor, but I did, and I don't think anybody got hurt. And I pastored two churches until I was about 26 years old. And at 26 years old, um, I, I, uh, I went into full-time apologetics and evangelism ministry, kind of following in my father's footsteps there, traveling and speaking at churches and conferences and including apologetics. I, I should say that I got into apologetics because my wife, see, I don't believe in what, and you'll know what I mean by this, but the audience might not. I don't believe in what's called missionary dating, where you date someone and the excuse that you give to everyone for dating a non-Christian is that, well, maybe I'll change him or change her. But um, I, but that's what I ended up doing. My my wife at the time, uh, well, she's still my wife, <laughs> but the girl I was dating at the well, time. Well, that escalated she, quickly. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> but the girl I was dating at the time, who is now my wife, uh, had had what seemed like a gospel testimony, but she was um, a member of a church in Nashville, Tennessee, that ended up becoming, they did a special on 60 Minutes about the organization, and that turned out to be a bona fide cult. And so um, I wanted to figure out how to respond to what she was telling me that the leadership in her church was telling her. And so I, I got into apologetics kind of that way a little bit. And then, of course, at the same time, I had a close friend who had who had started to experience same-sex attraction and now today is uh, openly gay and an atheist because that, however you want to frame this up in terms of salvation doctrine, that um, that temptation in his life— to a, 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 de a degradation in his commitment to church to where he completely left. And he began to challenge me with atheist rhetoric that I didn't know how to respond to. And I was rattled, but I wasn't rattled in the sense that I didn't, uh, that I experienced some serious doubt. I was rattled in the sense that I wanted to give an answer that I didn't know how to give. And so as a result, um, I got into apologetics more and ultimately began to include that in my evangelistic ministry. Uh, by the end of the, the 2000s, um, I was in a doctoral program working on a PhD in apologetics and then uh, started to teach at the school that I was studying at. And then ultimately, uh, now I'm in administration and I'm the president of the school that I was studying at. And then went on to get a doctor of ministry uh, degree at another school, Luther Rice Seminary. And the reason that I did that, and I, I don't mean to suck all the air out of the room, I, I need to stop, but the reason that I did all of that uh, and included the ministry, the doctor of ministry degree, was with the PhD I had focused on in my major writing project, evangelism and apologetics. But then I wanted to, I wanted to uh, supplement that with um, discipleship and apologetics. I think that apologetics needs to be a part of both of those things. And so, and the ministry side of it is so important to me. That's why I love talking with pastors. I was a pastor. I, some of my closest friends are pastors. And that is where a lot of this um, frontline uh, work is going on. And so I wanted to augment things in that direction too. So currently, as you said, I, I host uh, a YouTube channel, uh, Trinity Radio, and a podcast that goes along with that. And I'm a professor of apologetics and evangelism at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. So that's me. 
Yeah. Hey, there's an old. Uh, by the way, don't feel bad if you suck all the air out of the room. I'm. I had you on for an interview. This whole point is for you to talk and for me to sit here and get the day off. Okay, that's the point. Okay. <laughs> so, um, right. no, I think that's awesome, I, and that's one of the things I noticed as a pastor, especially. I'm like, no, it's not. It's more than just for evangelism. Discipleship is. I'm uh, not discipleship. Apologetics is. It's used in so many ways in discipleship. I think of a young man I have in my church. I mean, at early on when he first came to our church, he was partying on the weekends. He was doing all the things that you shouldn't be doing. And through apologetics and discipleship, he's completely changed. He leads our praise and worship. He does so many things. And he does, and he's amazing. It's an amazing cha transformation. And it was all through various apologetics things. He'd come to me with questions that he's getting from work. And then he'd ask, and then he would do, return those questions back. And then there was one time, you know, I just remember distinctly, he asked me, hey, Will, I want to sit down and talk to you because I, I need to know how to answer these questions. There's things I know. I, I know I'm a Christian. I know that it's true, but I need to know how to re answer some of these things. So apologetics is, is something that is a, one of those arts that few people seem to apply, but it's one of those things that's so effective in the church because we need more of that. We need more uh, reasoning. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? You know, get, be prepared for the hope that is in you to, get to give an answer to anyone or Acts 17, you know, like David Wood's whole thing, which, you know, be, you know, reasoned with them every day in the temple. So uh, there's a lot of things there. So I think that is, uh, I think that's awesome. And I, I have high respect for that. Um, and especially someone who pastored a church and having pastoral friends, me being a pastor, I just appreciate the heart there. So thank you for that. Um, so uh, now I'm sucking all the air out of the room. So, but anyway, um, so anyway, um, so my question is, is so when it comes to apologetics, there's a kind of a debate in the apologetics realm, which is, I'm sure you already know of it, the presuppositional apologetics or what is known as evidential apologetics. Um, could you do me a favor and just kind of flesh out which which is which in your view and also uh, which one do you tend to hold to and why? I just feel like this is a, something that I hear a lot of people and I'd love to hear your answer. Yeah, so um, I've got close friends who are presuppositionalists, but I am an evidentialist. Now, um, I'll say this, there's a great book for anybody that's interested in um, apologetic methodology uh, that is called Five Views on Apologetics, and it's from Zondervan's Counterpoint series. That they, they have a bunch of like five views, four views, these kind of things, and it goes through the, the five different, because there are actually five different views uh, or methodologies for apologetics. Those are classical apologetics, and that's what I am. I'm a classical apologist, and a classical apologist is a two-step method. So the classical apologist shows first that God exists using an argument for God's existence, and then follows that with a case, usually a case for the resurrection of Jesus, so that we've shown that God exists, so that we, we can then say that th there is a God that exists to have raised Jesus from the dead, and then we give the resurrection case. Uh, evidentialist apologetics, which that is a form of evidential, you're giving evidence and arguments and things, but there is a methodology that is properly called evidential apologetics, and that would be someone like Mike Lycona or Gary Habermas, people that focus almost exclusively on the resurrection. And the only difference between classical apologetics and evidentialist apologetics is that the evidentialist just doesn't argue for God's existence. They just only they just start with the resurrection because they figure, if I can show that uh, Jesus was raised from the dead, well, then God exists to have raised Jesus from the dead. So that's the distinction there. And then cumulative case apologetics is less focused on rigorous argumentation. It's more like just throwing out facts about the way that the world is. And you could do that on a college campus, you know, just throwing out little facts about, you know, maybe you came out of a class uh, with a friend on the migratory patterns of butterflies. And you're like, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? What best explains that? Doesn't that seem like that kind of counts in favor of, 
of there being a God who kind of set that up. Or maybe you come out of a movie that's focused, like I remember The Adjustment Bureau was a movie several years ago with Matt Damon, and it was all about free will. He said, do you think that we have the freedom to make choices? Yeah, of course I do. Okay, well, doesn't it make more sense if God exists that we have that? Because if, if there's no God, then everything's just like cause and effect, like dominoes falling against each other. So cumulative case apologetics just takes little facts, and it's not about big, rigorous argumentation. But then you come to two other methods. The, the last method that's usually discussed is what's called reformed epistemology, and I don't know that that's really, that would take a lot of time for us to really talk about that. That's but basically the idea there. Yeah, basically the idea there is to show that you don't need external evidence to be justified in your Christian faith. So that the you know, perhaps a little old man or a little old lady in your church who says, I believe uh, and because I have this internal experience of God. Well, where some people may say, oh, that's terrible. You don't have any good evidence. Well, that kind of serves as an internal evidence to her or to him that it's real and that shouldn't be discounted. Now, Reformed epistemologist advocates might not frame it up that way. But but to get to your question, the, the, one of those, the, the last one that I'll discuss here is presuppositional, as you said, presuppositional apologetics. And the big rub comes between the other, uh, the first three that I discussed, classical, evidentialist, and cumulative case on the one hand, and presuppositionalism on the other. And since those first three are thought of as the ones that provide most notably these, this evidence, they're thought of all three as evidential, even though there's one in there that's specifically evidential. And so there's an argument between presuppositionalists and evidentialists. And the, what the presuppositionalist says is, and this is like what Greg Bonson or, or perhaps Cornelius Van Til would have said, who popularized these, these things, they would, they would say something akin to, listen, um, we need to, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't get on level playing fields, so to speak, and reason up together with the skeptic to the point of God's existence or the resurrection. Now, they'll sometimes use those arguments that we would use, but they want to, and this is partly because of their Calvinism, which could take us off in a whole other direction, but on because on Calvinism, the idea is that God must, um, you know, do that act, and, and uh, regeneration precedes faith, that, that God works in your life, and then you come to this point of faith and you understand all these things. Because of the way that's framed up, you could never hope to reason with a skeptic to the point that they would then become a Christian, because what is necessary for that to happen is that the Holy Spirit needs to uh, irresistibly grace them before that will happen, and he may not be doing that right now. And so you're wait, they're, they're, not only are they not necessarily going to reason with you, they, they are in rebellion against God. So simply put, they, the presuppositionalist is so-called because he or she starts with the presupposition that God, the, tr the Trinitarian God of the Bible exists, and, and then you can attack, but I'm going to show you why nothing you're saying makes sense unless you also presuppose that the Trinitarian God of the Bible exists. So it's more like I'm presuming all of this, and then you can attack, and I'm going to explain why you're wrong, rather than here's a bunch of evidence, and let's reason up together to God's existence. So that's a little bit difficult, but that's kind of the idea. And I've got close friends who are presuppositionalists. One is Eli Ayala, who runs the apologetics channel Revealed Apologetics. And he might even take issue with how I've described some of that. But simply put, we're presupp the presuppositionalist presupposes that um, Christianity is true, and then, you, and then the skeptic can, can bring their arguments. Now, I, I, maybe I'm going too far to, to say this, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, and put another step there to make it to kind of fully paint the picture. 
one of their biggest points they want to make, and which is also central to their argument, they do have an argument that is most at home with them called the tag argument, the transcendental argument for God. And what they do there is to try and show you can't even make sense of reason and logic uh, unless you have a grounding or a foundation for that. And ultimately, the only foundation that really makes sense is the God of the Bible. And the way that Cornelius Van Til, um, who, who really did popularize all of this, the way that he paints the picture of the atheist there is when the atheist is arguing against Christianity. It's like a little child crawling up in its father's lap to slap his face. And the point of the image is, if the father's lap wasn't there for the child to climb up on to be able to slap the father's face, then they wouldn't be able to do it. And in the same way, the presuppositionalist wants to say to the unregenerate um, atheist or something, you're using logic and reason, but you can't make sense of logic and reason if there's not a God who grounds logic and reason for you to use that argumentation. So you're proving that God exists by arguing against him. So I know that seems very complicated to anyone in the audience who hasn't heard that stuff before, but that's kind of the rub. And I myself think that I think that um, Paul gives us, as you said, in Acts chapter 17 and elsewhere, the Bible gives us reason to believe that giving the taking the evidentialist approach makes sense with Scripture. So that's kind of what what the lay of the land is and where I stand on it. <laughs> well, that's, that's thank you. Uh, that's a very loaded topic, which is why I was like, this would be an interesting one to talk about because I have uh, I have a lot of friends that are presuppositionalists, mainly because a lot of people from Bible college I went from became Calvinists, and then you have people like you know Dr. James White, you have people like Jeff Durbin who do these great, you know they, they do a really good job in a lot of areas and they do fantastic work, but they're presuppositionalists, and that's the thing where you hear people say all the time, you pre well you're presupposing that God exists, and you know like I've seen them you know mix certain things together, and I've also seen some hilarious debates uh, what where they've been involved, where the atheists lost their mind. Uh, there's that one. I think I probably know what you're thinking of. The, the one, Are the you one, thinking of the James White Jeff Durbin debate with the guy with the antifreeze or whatever? Yes, that was amazing. I, I'm sorry, like that. That was amazing. I I was so enter unbelievably entertained. I was like, no, no, put him back on. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, I had a friend. And I, and I should say, I, I should say too, some people and some evidentialist friends of mine are very outspoken that presuppositionalism is a bad way to do it. But my personal position is it's not a bad way to do it. It's just not the only way to do it. And so I think there are, like when I, like I agree with everything they're saying. I agree with, except for the Calvinism, I agree with the idea that the, un, that, you know, the, the secularists cannot make sense of logic and reason without God as a grounding for that. I agree with that. My problem with using it is twofold. Number one, I think that by the time you explain what you mean to the person you're trying to evangelize or that you're trying to present this to, it's so difficult to understand that by the time you've explained it to them, they're already out. That, I mean, that's not to say that it's never worked. It has. But that's, that's so practically speaking, for practical ministry, that's one of my issues. Um, but but my other my other issue is I just don't think there's a problem with and I think it's much more effective to simply give them the good reasons and really as as we've said on the show our show many times um, I think that the biggest beef I have is the way some presuppositionalists do presuppositionalism more than it is the method itself 
So if you run into a person totally who agree. says to the atheist, so sometimes an atheist will ask a particular presuppositionalist, um, what about uh, the stuff in the Old Testament where God commands Joshua to go in and slaughter the Canaanites? And, the, and I've heard presuppositionalists say, and this is not all presuppositionalists, but I've heard specific presuppositionalists say, I'll answer that. I do Bible studies with Christians, and I, that's a Bible study question, and I'll answer that question once you become a Christian, but right now we need to talk about this other thing. Listen, you brought up 1 Peter 3.15 a moment ago, and you're right. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready and willing always to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you. So if someone asks me a question like that, I think I'm obligated to give them an answer if I have an answer. Um, so there's, you know, but that's not all presuppositionalist, but that's kind of where I land on that. No, absolutely. And, uh, that same here. I've been asked so many things about the old Testament. It's a really interesting story. And for those of you who are watching, if you haven't read, is God a moral monster? It's a great book that breaks it down very well. Um, and there's other, it doesn't answer everything, but it answers the bulk. Um, so anyway, but that's the thing I noticed too. Uh, sometimes I've, with those interactions, not all of them, but some of them, uh, I had an interaction with one downtown here in Grand Rapids and, uh, it was weird. He, they were passing out and they were doing like some street preaching there some reformed presbyterians and uh and it was funny he handed it to me and i was like oh thank you and i just walked i probably got, probably got about 10 feet away and i was like i'm not gonna take this literature i know jesus christ uh i'm not, you know use that so i was just being polite so i turned around it's like hey man look i you know i just want you to know i'm a believer and so i really don't need this um and i just want you to pass on to somebody who does and he goes oh what do you oh you're a believer i was like yeah and i was like i'm a pa local pastor and i explained myself briefly on just what i what what i do and how I'm from, uh, what I'm, where, how I'm from, where I'm from, and uh, he, um, and it was funny because he was like, uh, he, he somehow he brought up uh, free will or something, and uh, and he's, oh yeah, no, oh, he asked me if I if I hold to the Westminster Confession, and I was like, mm, I mean, depends which part, <laughs> and uh, you know, then it, it and we went, uh, took the deep dive, and uh, I told him I was like, well, I'm a, I tend to be a Molinist, and he literally. I kid you not, he just grabs his Bible and goes, oh, couldn't find it. And I'm like, okay, all right. So we're going to be that way about this whole interaction. Okay. Right. And uh, right. then we had this one guy come up, and he was like yelling, screaming. And then he, uh, when I first tried to just be polite and reason with the guy, this guy, the pre-sup guy, just started unloading on him in this very, like, how do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? And I'm like, no, dude, this is not a way to do it. And the guy ended up flipping us off and telling us all sorts of great places to go uh, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, walked away. And, uh, you know, but it was one of those things where I was frustrated because I was like, man, that just didn't seem like an effective approach. Uh, this guy seemed like he had some beef and you could, you could listen and just answer his refutations and kind of plant a seed instead of just... I don't know. So I, I have noticed some of those issues, and I think anyone can fall into those. And I do think we see biblical arguments for precept to a degree. You know, Romans one kind of covers some of those things, uh, but at the same time, there are other areas in the Bible that shows the fact that I think a classical argumentation and uh, being more evidentialist in nature might be a, a better approach. But well, and he, and I, here's what I tell Calvinist presuppositionalist students that I have at Trinity um, is I say, look, okay, here's the deal, you. You believe that God uses means, right? You believe that God, that's, Calvinists always say that, God uses means, because he uses the means of the preaching of the gospel, right? God doesn't have to do that, but that's what he does. Okay, well, apologetics, a good evidentialist apologetics presentation should include the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul said, this is the gospel I preached to you while I was yet with you, that uh, Jesus was dead, buried, and rose again, and appeared to all these people, right? 
Okay, well, we're going to include that. So we're, and to preach is merely to proclaim the truth. So a good apologetics presentation is the preaching of the gospel. And it just includes evidences and arguments. And if God uses means, the means of preaching, um, why, why would you think that God might not use uh, an evidential approach? Now, the presuppositionalists have a response to that. They'll say, well, God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. But hold up. Um, that, that's kind of to try and bypass things. The reality is if God can use means and he uses your preaching, and your preaching sometimes includes quotes from other people, illustrations, stuff like that, my preaching includes evidence for the truth of God, evidence for the resurrection. Why can't God use the preaching of the gospel that I do with my evidentialist approach? And I've had many presuppositionalists come out of our class not getting rid of presuppositionalism, but but not using it only and in isolation. And if you want to be a toolkit apologist who uses all the methodologies, I think that's perfectly fine. No, I, that's actually because as you went through them, uh, you described, I was like, my word, I know I personally use at least every single one of those to one degree right. or other. And I think that's the thing is that you know, no, you do want to be the Swiss Army knife, right? You want to be equipped to be able to handle various things because you have different people need different approaches. That's like kids. When you're raising a child, you know that this kid, you might have one kid of yours that's that's the devil, you know? So you're going to have to take a different approach with, with you know, little Lucifer. And then you have, you know, you, this other kid who's the angel and you're like, oh, you're fantastic, and so it's easier. But you, different people are going to require different approaches. Yeah. Um, and certain people, you know, they're more defensive. Other people are more, they're going to be more likely to listen. And some people are just inquisitive. And I think it's just, it's okay to change your approach. And I just don't, and that's why I say all the time, like, I think I really honestly see both in the Bible. So I guess that brings me to my next question, because we already talk, we're already talking about evangelism. How do, what approach do you find the most effective when ministering? I think you kind of answered that and touched on that with, when you talked about that, you're, you do classical apologetics. But um, then also, like, how do you think philosophy and apologetics correlates with evangelism? So um, I, I actually think that uh, this, and this goes back to our discussion of methodology. So when I'm debating or when I'm presenting arguments on YouTube in a video, I'm a classical apologist in the sense that I usually give uh, syllogisms, which are structured arguments. And, um, you know, so like the Kalam cosmological argument um, everything that begins to exist must have a cause. Premise two: the universe began to exist. Therefore, the you know that that whole thing. And then with mor with the moral argument, um, you know, Craig's moral argument is if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. So, so you have these structured arguments, and and I'll do that, and then I'll go into a resurrection case that has these very specific you know points of uh, that his historians agree about and all that whole thing. But when I'm doing evangelism one on one. I use more of the cumulative case approach that um, that that you know is is more conversational, and I actually uh, have a couple of ways to do that. I, I, I there's a guy who's who used to be he's a Catholic now, and and we used to have him teach, but but we don't have him teach now that he's um, now that he's converted to Catholicism. Uh, but uh, Don Johnson was his name, not the guy from Miami Vice, but another Don Johnson, Donald J. Johnson. He has a book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, and, and his approach, I think, is pretty good. And it's pretty easy for um, people that aren't that familiar with apologetics to pick up and use. And so what he does is he says, look, um, he says to this, to this person, the skeptic, whether they're a Muslim or an atheist or whatever, he says, look, um, would you uh, first tell me how you answer the big questions of life? And by that, I mean... How did we get here? 
what's the purpose of life if there is one, and what happens when we die? Now, everyone who's got a worldview has got answers to those questions, um, even if the question, even if the answer is I don't know. So, so like uh, with an atheist, what would they say? How do we get here? Well. Uh, the Big Bang happened and matter coalesced into stars and ultimately you had um, galaxies and then solar systems and then uh, abiogenesis occurred and life began and then you had evolution and ultimately here we are. Um, uh, what's the purpose of life? They might say if they're like a Jean-Paul Sartre type atheist like they mostly are today, they'll say there isn't really an, uh, 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 like any kind of transcend transcendent meaning to life or purpose, but I can make a purpose for myself. I like philosophy or like music or whatever. And then what happens when we die? Well, that's at the end. We just die. Okay. Well, Muslims have answers to those three questions. Hindus have answers to those three questions. Everyone with a worldview has answers to those questions. Now, I just let them tell me because first of all, most of your skeptics have been waiting for some Christian to shut up preaching at them and let them talk. Well, here's your chance. We're going to let you talk. So tell me how you answer these three questions. And then after they get done, now it's my time to attack, right? No, I still let them talk more. What I say next is, great, that's great. And if I have to ask a clarifying question, I can ask that, but I'm not challenging, challenging them yet. Next I say, would you mind explaining to me uh, what you, in like a paragraph, just, you know, just talking, just... How do you, what do you understand the basic Christian message to be? And the reason I'm asking them this is because I'm trying to make sure I understand what their worldview is, because sometimes they're, if they say, well, I'm a Muslim, well, there's a bunch of different kinds of Muslims. I'm an atheist. Well, there's a bunch of different kinds of atheists, right? So I want to find out exactly where they stand, and then I want to find out what they understand the Christian message to be, so if they're wrong, I can correct them, so that we're not talking past each other. So I so it's actually really know, great. That's fantastic. I'm going to add that to Brian. Add that to the notebook. Yeah, yeah. So so then I, you know they'll say something like, "Now I'm going to give you obviously a, like a caricature." Some of them are more or less this, but they might say something like, "Well, the Bible story is that God made people and He stuck a tree in there for I don't know why to set them up to fail, and that's why He put the snake in there and a talking snake. What is this Disney?" And then there was all these years in the wilderness where there's this weird new thing with sacrifice and animal sacrifice, and and um, you, and then they have to kill a bunch of people, and then ultimately God decided to fix all this by sending Himself to die as a sacrifice to Himself to, uh, you know, so that I guess we could go to heaven if we're good enough. If we do enough good works, we get to go to heaven. If we do enough bad works, we don't get to go to heaven. And then if you do go to heaven, you get like 76 virgins or something. You know, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Way to shove that in. <laughs> I'm Muslim. I, I didn't obviously, know. That's, that's like a caricature, obviously. But the point is, they'll get some things right and they'll get some things wrong. Now, if they get... What they get... What they get uh, right, if they get it all right, which sometimes they do, then uh, great, we're ready to move on. If they don't, if they get stuff wrong, you can say, okay, you know what, you're right. There are some Christians, or depending on what it is, there are some people claiming to be Christians who do believe what you just said. So I, I, that's right. But let me tell you what I think the Bible says about that. And then, because, you, you know, you don't want to make them sound stupid. And, and whatever they say, they say, well, that's very interesting. But let me tell you what I think the Bible says. So, so then now we both understand each other. And even though I'm taking a long time to explain this, this all can happen pretty quick. And then the next thing I do is to say, all right, would you mind sharing? Now, notice they've been talking this whole time. I'm going to give them another chance to talk. Say, all right, would you mind sharing with me a few things about the world that we agree are true about the way the world is? that you think your worldview makes sense of better than my Christian worldview makes sense of. 
So you're asking them to give you a cumulative case, like we've been talking about, for their position. You're asking them, show me some stuff about the world that the Christianity doesn't make sense of. Now, they might say the fact that evil exists, you know, why would a loving God allow pain and suffering? A lot of them will say, well, science. Science works. And since science works, that makes more sense on atheism than this weird, magical, fairy tale Christianity stuff. The ultimate trump card, it, science. Yeah, because science, right? <laughs> but then that's where we get to actually come in and we do engage. We say, well, now, hold on a second. Actually, we believe science works, too. And historically, some of the, some of the first you know, people that really did the best with science uh, to popularize science were Christians, a lot of the scientific institutions. But more than that, we believe that looking at the world as the creation of a mind, it makes sense of the fact that nature is intelligible like this, so we can make sense of it and those sorts of things. And so you just talk about that. When they get done, and they usually don't have more than one or two things, and he says, is that all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. All right. Now, what I want to do, and this is the final step, is now I'd like to share with you some things about the world that I think my Christian worldview makes sense of better than your Muslim worldview or your atheist worldview or whatever it is. So if it's an atheist, just to make this easy, we might say something like, you know, I think the fact that morality seems like a real thing, you know, that it seems like really things are really right and wrong. I think the fact that we ha seem to have free will to make real choices. I think the fact that the New Testament has... Uh, survived to this day, and that there are people uh, who are philosophers, uh, physicists, and, you know, bums on the street all believe the New Testament. Now, that's where, if we were using a more rigorous argumentation type approach, someone would say, well, now, hold on a second. That's, a, that's this fallacy and that fallacy and blah, blah, blah. But that's not what we're doing. We're not giving arguments here. We're just throwing out facts that, that are true that seem to make more sense if Christianity is true. Near-death experiences, that's super weird. Makes more sense if Christianity is true. The rapid expansion of the early church makes more sense if Christianity is true. So all these things are th consciousness. Now, all these things are things that we can just throw out and discuss with them. And in the end, they're not going to be able to find anything that Christianity doesn't account for that is real because Christianity is true. And there's going to be a lot of things that Christianity accounts for that their worldview doesn't account for. But the thing I love about this and I'm glad that it's going to be on video so people can go back and listen again. The thing I love about this is it's really conversational, and it's just two people talking. Now, where the last thing I say, and I always say this when I do uh, conference breakout sessions, is you might think, yeah, but you just said some stuff, Braxton, that I don't have a clue what you're talking about, and it sounded really complex, and I totally get that. But you can be a Christian apologist today after you watch this video, even if, you have never heard of any of this stuff before. And the way you do that is you may not be ready to be an answer giver yet, but you can be an answer finder for people right now. Because if you're talking with someone and they say something and you don't know how to answer or they ask a question, you know what you got to be willing to do? You got to be willing to say, I don't know. You say, yeah, but then they'll know that I don't know. Yeah, so what? You didn't know. That shows them that you're humble. And then you can go find out and come back and continue the conversation. We have a t-shirt actually in our store called the answer find. I'm an, it says I'm an answer finder because even if you can't be an answer giver, you can be an answer finder. And so in terms of being evangelistic and sharing with your friends and coworkers and strangers, you just have to be willing to talk about this stuff in a simple way. Like I've just described, how, how do you answer the big questions of life? What do you understand Christianity to be? 
What do you have that you don't think my worldview can account for? And then I'm going to share with you what I think it can account for. And if you don't, and what takes all the fear out of it is if they ask you something you don't know, just say, I don't know, and go find the answer. And it's as simple as that. that that's actually a really great approach. I didn't even think about the whole like moment where you just go, all right. Well, how do you think of Christianity? Like, what what do you, what is your understanding of my of my beliefs? Like, that seems so d- d- duh. Uh, so uh, it's it, I, I, and I, hey, and I didn't think of it either. Like I said, this this came from Donald J. Johnson. And if anybody wants a good book, uh, he became Catholic, but the book was from before he was Catholic. It's called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. And another great book I'm just uh, about halfway through now is Tactics. I'm sure you've read it. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, Tactics is great. Uh, as a person who I'm like, oh, yeah, some of these, like I'm just in the first half, like I'm pretty well familiar with these. But, man, this is a great place for people to start who don't know apologetics, who aren't like, who, and you don't have to be scared, just teaching you how to kind of maneuver a, a hard conversation. And especially if you don't even might have the proper answers, it allows at least for you to maneuver the conversation in a confident sort of way. And I'm like, this is great, especially for like introverted people. I'm a very extroverted person. So for me, I'm like, oh, whatever, let's go. But you know, for people who are more like my wife, more timid, it's like, oh, this allows a great, this is a great tool. So yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I really like that. The conversational way is probably my favorite way, as much as I do love to preach and teach. Uh, Conversational is just more personable, and it feels a lot less hostile. So I think that's I think that's fantastic. So uh, that- and, and and lastly, I should say one one place that anyone can start that if you have a history in the church, one place you can start with apologetics that's going to be more familiar is the resurrection because you already basically probably know the narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and you so you're familiar with that stuff. So that might be a good place to start. Absolutely. Actually, uh, that's where I started when I first started getting into apologetics. It's like, okay, resurrection case, let's go. And then that's when Gary Habermas showed up, and uh, then uh, Dr. Craig showed up, and I was like, wow, okay, hello. They, they are the horsemen. Like, when it comes to a lot of this stuff, they're, they're, they're really well done. So um, now, right. to kind of shift, I guess, we've been talking a lot about apologetics, but now this is something I want to talk, to, talk about personally. This is more of a selfish motivation on my part, but uh, which... Obviously, it's a loaded topic. We could have our own separate video on this. You have like a seven-hour discussion uh, on a little bit of the free will conversation uh, with like Leighton Flowers and uh, Stratton. Tim Stratton? Is that Tim it? Stratton. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's great, by the way. Go check it out. Anyway, um, but the, the you've mentioned before that you're a Molinist. And uh, so am I. And it's nice to find somebody because I say I'm a Molinist and people go, a what? And, uh, and then I get to sit there and try to navigate and explain it to people. So question for me uh, with Molinism, obviously, I, I want to get accused of it being more philosophical than biblical. I'm sure you've heard the same, the same uh, objection. I guess we'll get to objections in a minute, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, so first off, how do you think Molinism uh, relates to your public ministry? Do you think it does at all? And uh, have there been any major objections toward Molinism? And you might want to explain what Molinism is to the people here. I'm going to do a video on it, fully breaking it down, but I haven't yet. So go. Yeah, sure. So I am a Molinist. Uh, I am what you might call a mere Molinist. So there was this uh, guy during the Reformation, um, uh, Louis de Molina. And Molina um, is why it's called Molinism. It's, it's based on the thinking of Molina. A lot of people also uh, question people like me and you who are evangelicals who are Molinists because Molina was a Jesuit priest. And so, uh, they, they, but, but here's the thing. It's just like the Kalam cosmological argument, which is one of the great 
arguments for God's existence that Christians use um, was popularized and, you know, worked on uh, by uh, Muslims. But the thing is, all truth is God's truth. If a Muslim figures out something that's true, then we can use that. Um, if a Jesuit figures out something that's true, we can use that. So uh, that's an interesting thing to point out, I think. Um, Molinism basically, so this is the way I approach it if I'm talking to a, a normal person, and by which I mean people who think about really important things instead of the weird philosophical heady things that I waste my time thinking about. Uh, but if I'm talking to a person in your church after a church service, a little old lady, I might ask her this question. Uh, I might say, do you believe that God knows everything that ever has happened? And she'll say, yes, of course. Of course I believe that. Do you believe that God knows everything that will happen? Of course. He's, um, he's omniscient. He's God. He knows everything. I say, all right, let me ask you this. Do you think that God, that if we hadn't had this conversation right now, but we had both started having conversations with other people here. Do you think God knows what we would have been talking about with those other people? And 99% of the time they're going to say, well, yeah, of course God would know that. Okay, you're a Molinist. <laughs> because, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> that, That's amazing. I, I, that's such a good way to do it. That's... Wow, I always got into the test. I get way too technical. I'm like, all right, so all these decisions, counterfactuals, da 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 da. And I like start drawing graphs. I kid you not, I did this recently with my friend. And he's like, oh, this is great. That is so much easier. Yeah. I'm doing this from now on. <laughs> well, because the, you know, the engine behind Molinism, and when you say you're a mere Molinist like I do, what I mean by that is I affirm the basic central feature of Molinism. And I say that because I haven't read Molina's full work. And, uh, and, and, and there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff he said that I don't know that I would affirm, but the most central feature is what's called middle knowledge. And what middle knowledge says is that God not only knows, uh, the past, present and future, but he also knows what would have happened under other circumstances. So like with the lady in, in the sanctuary, if we would have not had this conversation, but we would have gone and talked to other people. God knows that too. That means he's got that middle knowledge. And most church people, if you ask them simply that, they're going to feel compelled to say, of course, yes. Now, the reason that it sounds really philosophical and weird and people can spin through the Bible and say, I don't see Molinism here and all that sort of thing is because when you play it out and you start to explain it. Oh, really cool. I see a rabbit outside my window. Sorry, that was just really cool. Um, I have six bunnies upstairs, little baby bunnies my wife rescued. So, Oh, yeah? <laughs> so, okay, yeah, so that's weird, but continue. Yeah, ADD or something, I don't know. But, um, but uh, God knows what I would have seen if I hadn't looked out the window. That's middle knowledge. But so, you, so, so that's middle knowledge. But when it gets weird and philosophical, and the thing that people don't like is when it gets that way is when you start to describe what you're saying, in a, in philosophical terms, what you what one way of thinking about it is when you start talking about possible worlds. Now, when we talk about possible worlds, we are not talking about some kind of multiple universe with other worlds that are real and exist. You're talking about Mar the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let's be real. <laughs> right. We're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, we're talking about ways the world could have been but isn't. So when we say it's a possible world, the reason we call it possible is not because it possibly might still happen or something. It's because a possible world is one that isn't impossible, by which we mean there's nothing that is contradictory or incoherent in that world. 
So one of the classic examples of something that is impossible is a married bachelor. And anybody who's thought about philosophical stuff for very long has read about the married bachelor. A married bachelor is someone who's married and a bachelor at the same time. Or a square circle. These things don't exist. Square circles can't exist for obvious reasons. And married bachelors can't exist because if someone is married, they are not a bachelor. And if someone is ba a bachelor, they are not married. So if I talked about a world comprised of nothing but married bachelors and square circles, that is an impossible world because it could not possibly exist. But a world where nobody has a left arm, uh, that's not impossible so far as I know. Or a world where everything is the same except Winston Churchill never existed or music was never invented. That's a sad world, but there's nothing impossible about it, as far as I can tell. So that's when we talk about possible worlds. There goes well, your high school that... dream. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, so go ahead, keep going. So how does it come to bear on this issue that we're discussing now? Well, the way it comes to bear on this is we would say, like, okay, the, the other worlds, the ways that it could have gone but didn't, those are possible worlds out there. They don't really exist, but God would be aware of all the possible worlds. All the seemingly, not actually, but seemingly infinite number of possible worlds, the ways it could have gone. And if God is aware of all those things, then it seems reasonable to think that God selected, um, it, like he knows if I create in such and such a way, this world will result. Okay, then it seems like God would have selected among those possible worlds the world that he wanted the most to, act, to be actualized, to end up coming to exist. Now, the reason you're a Mol or one of the principal reasons you, you or me or other people are Molinists might be, might be that when we're talking about this soteriological issue of Calvinism, which says that God determines everything that happens, God determines everything down to the movement of the smallest molecule, so that while you think you're making real free choices in, in the sense that you and I mean freedom, libertarian freedom, it, it's not really, God's determined all of that. Okay, and it could not have been otherwise. Well, the Molist wants to say, well, now hold on. How can it be true that God is ultimately in control and ultimately His goals are met, but yet man is still free and has free will? And so the Molinist says, maybe. So you've got all these possible worlds, but then, so there's a possible world. Let's say there's a possible world where um, uh, everyone freely chooses to accept Christ as Savior. Okay, for all I can tell, that is a possible world. But, uh, I'm, yeah, it, it is a possible world. There's nothing impossible about that. But when you actually give man freedom, maybe it just never in any world that God could actualize ever comes out that way. That means we have, we have lowered the possible worlds down to a set that we call feasible worlds, worlds that are feasible for God to create, okay? So in that set of worlds, and I know this is really complex, and I know you know all of this, but to the audience member, I'm sorry. But actually, the Wikipedia page on Molinism is pretty darn good, so just keep that tucked away. But um, these feasible worlds, so God has all these worlds where he gives man free will. And it may be that in those worlds that he could create, man has free will, but there's never a world where everyone freely chooses to be saved or evil pain and suffering don't exist. But he chose to actualize the world that most closely aligned with what he wants. And a lot of millennials will say it seems it makes sense. We can't be dogmatic, but it makes sense to say that would be a world where the most people freely choose to be saved. And so what you have is that's why in this world we see um, we, 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 we still see pain and suffering and evil. 
We still see people that don't come to be saved, but um, but it could still be the best or the, the, the world that most closely aligns with what God wanted of the worlds that he could create. Now, that is a really complex way of unpacking the very simple and intuitive Christian perspective that our church lady had just a moment ago, that when I asked her, did God know what we would have done if we hadn't chosen to talk? And she said, yes. She didn't realize it, but our hypothetical lady in the church was actually affirming all of this grand stuff because when you unpack that idea that he knows what we would have done had we not had the conversation, all of this stuff plays out from that. You know, it's really funny you say that, all of that because uh, first off, that uh, it's not. I feel like it's it's complicated, but at the same time, you can explain it in a way that's simple, and that's what you just did. And honestly, when it comes to, like the Epicurean paradox, I'm sure you're sure you're. Uh, I want to make sure I got the name right, which is why you saw me reaching for my phone. But uh, the Epicurean paradox, where it says, you know, uh, could God have created a world where evil does not exist? And it's like, and yes, he could have, but they wouldn't be free creatures. And so that's what I say all the time. Like, yes, he could have, but then you're not truly free if evil doesn't exist, because anything evil is that which is in direct opposite nature of God. So you can't do that. So yes, he could have created a world where everyone was saved, but again, that would be that would be in all likelihood, actually I could probably say with certainty that that would be a world without any sort of free will because then again you are still bound to this uh, which I think uh, in, in when it comes to reformed theology creates a different problem where if you're saying that God can truly control all things, uh, and he can control every single thing, he can make someone get saved, then you're really, I think, at a bigger pickle, because then you're going, okay, then why didn't he? You know? Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And, 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 and honestly, we should, we should say, to be cautious, I think he could have done that, but I don't think he chose to because he wanted real love and all those things that you described, you know, all the good things that come with free will. So, yeah, God could have made it such that we are all as Daniel Dennett put it, moist robots, and we all just do everything that he wants all the time, and everyone is freely safe. But that raises the question that you just mentioned: if if he if you know if it's not if God did determine everything like our reformed brothers and sisters think, and they are our brothers and sisters, but like they Absolutely. think, yeah. If 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 he had done that, why isn't everyone saved? And they think they can still hold on to the language of freedom because of what's called compatibilism. On that perspective, everyone could have freely and joyously chosen to be saved because God determined that they would do that. Why wouldn't God do that? That raises some very problematic uh, issues, I think. Absolutely. That was actually the thing, because so I was raised uh, a certain way, and a lot of my friends are jumping to the Reform boat and the Calvinism boat, and I was like, oh man, maybe everything I would talk, I was wrong about King James-onlyism and all these different things. Maybe I was wrong about this too, and I studied it, and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, I... I see where they're trying to make it make sense, but honestly, it creates more of a problem for me with God, and you know, and it makes me like I don't know about that. And it's funny because Brian here, who's the one who kind of did all this here, uh, is on the background. He was he went to Kelvin College, uh, like our Grand Rapids is like Calvinist Central. We have Kelvin College. Yeah. Uh, his your grandpa was the one who first compiled all of jo uh, John Kelvin's works from Latin into one singular piece. Wow. Yeah, like 
Calvinist. And it's funny because as he went through, like as he was raised, he's like, this doesn't make as much sense. He came to our church and he's still working on it. He was married to a good Baptist woman. Uh, and she just kind of kept breaking his brain with the Bible. And uh, over time, he's like, you know what? That's it. I'm reapproaching all of this from a new perspective. And it's funny. He came back to me. He explained. He's like, okay, so this way it seems like free will and sovereignty works. And the way he starts explaining it, I'm smiling. I'm like, you're a Molinist. And he's like, a what? A? <laughs> um, and it was, it was pretty cool because it just, and when he took off the, like, the lenses and just studied for himself, he realized that. So I think that's really interesting. I think the best part about uh, with Molinism, what's funny about Molinism is I've heard a few things. One is either if I'm talking to a Calvinist, it means I am 60 percent or more Arminian. And then when I'm talking about Cal uh, an Arminian, I'm always like 60% Calvinist. It's really funny how no matter what, I'm always one or the other. But uh, yeah, I, I understand that. And, and you raised a couple of questions a while ago that I actually didn't answer. You know, one thing is, well, you're just being too philosophical. Well, the moment that you open the Bible and begin to read the words on the page and formulate your own thoughts about it, like what, like, think about what it means and what it can't mean and what it does mean, you're already doing philosophy in your head. Philosophy is a prerequisite, and we're fortunate that God gave us minds that are able to do that. But here's a simple answer, a simple example. When you read the Bible and it tells you that God exists and you infer from that, you know what? If he exists, it's not true that he doesn't exist because of the law of non-contradiction, right? You didn't go through all of that, but you simply knew it. You're already doing philosophy. And Calvin used so much philosophy because they're invoking philosophical determinism to make sense of what's going on in the text, which is fine that they're using philosophy. But if you're going to do all that philosophy, and Augustine, who many Calvinists praise, you know, and I think Calvin said you could reconstruct, let's see what he said, you could reconstruct everything that Augustine, or let's see, everything he said with Augustine's words or something like that. Uh, Augustine's really important to Calvinism. Um really philosophical guy, always into philosophy, talking philosophy. So that's just complete bunk. People that say that don't understand what they're talking about. And if they say, well, you're invoking man-made philosophy, I don't even know what that means. I genuinely don't know what that means. Because what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, when he's talking about this sort of thing, he's talking about these big showy speeches that the pagans would do, and, and you're know, trying to to impress people with their philosophical thought and all of that. But he certainly wasn't against using philosophy. He he did use philosophy. So um, so that's completely out of the picture. That's that's bunk. That's ridiculous. Um, I'm sorry. I'm being a little bit more like my typical co-host, Jonathan Pritchett, right now. I don't care. You're good. I, I, I like it. So I'm, I'm a sassy, blunt individual. Trust me. I'm good. <laughs> Okay, so so that that position that they came to philosophically that ph philosophy can't be used is ridiculous and self-refuting. Now, um, the the other issue of um, there was another issue you raised, uh, like what are some problems that? Oh, I, one thing I want to say is now this may be a difference between you and I, um, and, and if it is, that's great, that's fine. It's a difference between me and I think Tim Stratton, who's one of my close friends, who you mentioned earlier. Um, I first became convinced of Molinism because I thought that that's what the text was giving me to make sense of passages that seemed Calvinistic and then passages that seemed to, to talk, to give me libertarian freedom. And how do I synthesize, how do I make sense of that? That's how I originally came to it. Um, but I literally do not use, to my knowledge, I don't use Molinism to answer anything 
in that Calvinism debate anymore. When, when there's a passage that seems Calvinistic, I don't rely on Molinism to answer any of those. I think there's always an answer that's, that I think is more likely to be true that is not Calvinistic that comes to us simply from like a simple foreknowledge view or just a normal, yeah, I don't want to say Arminian because I'll just say non-Calvinist, right, uh, perspective. I think they're answers. Like traditional, traditional, I think is what they like to call themselves now, like a traditional view. We lost you for a second, but uh, yeah, so I just, I, I mentioned the traditional view. I'm not sure if you, that, that's what they usually like to, I've noticed that, which I think is better than Arminian. So I think traditional, because that's very, yeah, yeah. traditional. Yeah, so the tradition, so among Southern Baptists, there was a statement written called the Traditionalist Statement on, on Baptist Soteriology, which is basically just to say Baptists don't, aren't Arminians for a variety of reasons, but they wanted to affirm what they do affirm, and so they came up with this statement, the Traditionalist Statement, that ultimately became a book, and I have a chapter in the book um, called Anyone Can Be Saved. But uh, now, has coined this term provisionalist, or provisionism, provisionism. And that's, if you're not a Baptist, but you basically believe a lot of that same stuff, provisionism. So all that to say, I can usually answer without the Molinism, but I'm still a Molinist because I think certain um, passages of Scripture do strongly imply, if if not outright, well, Molinism. I don't think any part of the Bible, I think, I'll agree with your presuppositionalist guy. He's like, I don't see it anywhere in the Bible. Okay, you're not going to see the word Molinism, obviously. You're not going to see, or Calvinism. You're not going to see um, a place in the Bible where it sets out to teach you Molinism. Okay, so there are certain passages in the Bible, and I don't have chapter and verse here, but there's a passage that has David in a particular town, and um, and he's it's revealed to him by God that Saul is going to come and, and attack, and if you're here, here's what's going to happen, X, Y, and Z. Okay. Now, the question then we want to ask is, all right, we all want to affirm that, that God can't be wrong, and we want to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. And so what that means is we've got to ask our question, like with our church lady here. All right, when, so that's not what ended up happening. David left. But God said if he had stayed, here's your counterfactual, if he had stayed, X, Y, and Z would have happened. Is God right or is God wrong? Uh if you say it's a meaningless question, it didn't seem like a meaningless question to God because God did say it, right? So the question is, is God right? If God's right, which I think all Bible-believing Christians would have to say he's right, if he's right, then middle knowledge is true. So it's because of things like that that I affirm middle knowledge. Where I think it's useful in practical ministry is when it comes to answering certain questions related to the problem of evil problem of pain and suffering, why would a loving God allow this sort of thing? Um, in my debate with Matt Dillahunty, uh, he actually asked me during the question and answer time at the end, he said, hold up a second. Uh, could God have made a world where I, where, where I Matt Dillahunty, am saved or, or remained a Christian? And I said, yeah, yeah, he, he could have created such a world, but it may be such a world he had to remove your libertarian freedom and make you a moist robot, basically, in order to do that. Because in it could be that in no world of free creatures does Matt Dillahunty freely choose to be saved. That, that's a real possibility. That in every single world, you reject Christ. I invoke Molinism sometimes in those kind of ways. So it does 
come up, and it is something I affirm. I just don't much for the uh, soteriological discussions based on, on the Bible, uh, but I but I still think that it's true. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's actually, uh, yeah, that was one of the things that I was like, that's a really new, uh, that, I thought that was a clever move on your part to argue against atheism was using the free will. And that's where I always say, like, it's really awkward. Uh, I don't know how, I have, like, again, I, re, I have a lot of reformed friends and I love them to death, Calvinist friends. And that's where I'm like, I don't know how you get around some of these weird things then, because the, one of the best refutations of atheism is the free will discussion. Uh, and so I thought what you were the first, and I think you're the only apologist I've heard to this day use a free will, uh, argument in that way and i was like mm. i was just gonna say there have been other people talk about free will in this context before c.s lewis said some things about it i've heard william lane craig and jp moreland say things about it but it's never been in a structured argument it's always been kind of indirectly so i put it into an argument and um i feel like god blessed that so i appreciate that you appreciated it <laughs> Sounds good to me. I like that. Uh, so um, now, when you're dealing with uh, uh, Molinism, and, uh, and then we we'll, we can get to the more of a conclusion here to the comp discussion. But I've heard so there's been a few objections to Molinism, and one of them you already answered, which is philosophy, right? Philosophy. We all do philosophy when you're doing theology. Theology is pro literally kind of like a sub uh, bracket of the uh, philosophy in many ways. Uh, so um, so when it comes to that, so there's that, and then the other one is if which is almost saying what people use, uh, almost thinking you're Calvinist, which is if God knows all counterfactuals along with our ultimate decision and how God, then how, and God chose to actuate that universe anyway, isn't free will just an illusion? Yeah. And you kind of hinted at this a while ago when you said that your Arminian friends will say that's too Calvinist and your Calvinist friends will say it's too Arminian. Um, but yeah, so the, the simple answer is, Absolutely not. It's not the least bit determinism. It's not the least bit to remove your free will because the whole point of the discussion is God is choosing among worlds where you have libertarian freedom. So, so it's it's um, it's it's kind of like uh, let's put it this way. Let's say let's say um, I had three games. I'm not I'm not a sports guy, but let's just say I I wanted to impress you with the Colts, and so I had three games on DVD. And in one game, the Colts uh, were, were absolutely destroyed, okay? In the second game, uh, they won, but only barely. But I'm really wanting to impress you here. So in the third game, the, it was a clear victory for the Colts, all right? So I've got those three, and I choose to show you, uh, I choose to actualize on the screen for you by putting the DVD in the game where they absolutely destroy the opposition, all right, does that mean that by my choosing to put that particular DVD in, that all of the moves that the players played in that game when it really happened were determined and not free? Well, not free. I just chose to actualize it on the screen for you and make it real to you. Now, no analogy is perfect by choosing that particular DVD to put in. So we're choosing among games where people made free decisions which one we're going to show. And in the same way, God chooses among worlds of free creatures which one he's going to actualize. Now, does God then determine uh, what's going to happen? Yes, but not in, the in the, not in the meticulous determinism that the Calvinist wants to say, where he chooses for everyone, basically. They would never say it like that. But he chooses for everyone what they're going to do in the movement of every molecule and all this blah, blah, blah. No, he just chose which set of free choices he's going to actualize. Like I would choose which DVD 
of free creatures or free actions, I'm going to show you. So that's kind of how I'd answer that question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually, I really like that DVD discussion. It's a good way to put it because it's like, well, you know, the future is God's memory, so to speak. So, yeah, it's kind of, it is kind of like that. And it gets complicated. It's like, yeah, this is a sovereign God. A sovereign God's so easy to understand. It's probably not a God really worth worshiping. And I say all the time, like, what makes it more, what makes God more sovereign? You know, because uh, that's the, always the thing that Calvinists always hit me with. It's like, well, this, we're give the maximal sovereignty. And I'm like, hold up for a second. You're saying God's essentially playing chess with himself you know like like i have determined all these things look how great i am it's like well it takes no one to it doesn't take that much power to do things for example uh, i'm a nerd i also tend to be kind of a gamer and i there was a video game i played once i know this sounds really dirty but bear with me braxton i play um, hey i play video games it's fine we can connect on that level too Sweet nerd. Uh, anyway, but there was one game. It was an indie game. I don't remember even what the name was. I got to get that name. But there's one part, the plot twist, was this whole puzzle game. And in the middle of the game, the guy, he's this little British guy and is very happy about everything. And then suddenly he starts questioning the world he's in. And then he starts going, wait, who's there? Who's that? Stop it. And then the controller starts fighting you. Like, you'll try to go left. He tries to go right. And then he starts realizing that he's being controlled by an exterior source. And, of course, and I was like... And I, for some reason, this popped in my brain. Like, this is Calvinism, right? Like, I am being controlled by something outside of me, and I have no choice. And, yeah. and it was one of those things where it was like, wow, it's weird when people say video games can't be art or touch on deep things. Because, wow, that was like, oh, wow, that's nuts. And it's like, you know, and in a, even a video game, you might have uh, choices you can make. But, you know, those are your choices that are limited to that world, so to speak. Yeah. Same with in a larger context. And again, no analogy is perfect, but I apply that and I usually use that to just kind of describe the how it applies to the real world. And usually people can track with me on that level, or at least young guys can who are also nerds. Absolutely. But, uh, well, um, so I, yeah. that sounded really familiar. I, that game sounds really familiar. You'll have to text me when you figure out what it was. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't remember. Uh, I was like, I'm like, it was a while ago, but I just, it popped in my brain when I was talking to Hill, uh, Brian the other day, one of our many late night chats. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I've seen this before. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think it's, it's, I think Molinism does help answer a lot of things. And I think also the acts, the end of act 17, there's a lot of parts that are, that hint toward it. You know, the, if statements are really awkward for me, if, if Molinism is not true, because, and then also like the whole book of judges starts off with, they did, I commanded them to do this. They didn't do this. So I did this. They are responsible for it. Okay. Now they're back to, and I'm like, this is, this really, a, I find the Bible to be very awkward if the determinism is true, because like, then why are half the conversations like in the book of Job and whatnot, seem nonsensical like well then why you know uh why would you even and also why would you be mad when someone didn't repent when you determined that they couldn't repent and so i find you know obvious this brings up questions and of course they will say well it's all to bring glory to god i'm like yeah but at the same time if god is all loving and all these things and uh <laughs> how do you make this at work because anyway so i just find that to be interesting mainly because i don't get a chance to talk to many learned molinists usually i'm teaching molinism to other people so i just thought it'd be kind of fun to have that conversation with you so thank yeah, you i love I love talking about it. I love philosophical conversations, and so I love to talk about it. And one thing I would say real quick on the on the point that you just raised, uh, or that you say your Calvinist friend raised, is um, the issue of sovereignty. And that is, I think everyone on both sides of this misses this. And it's this. It is a category error to say that God is more sovereign if God is determining everything. And here's why. Sovereignty, so a sovereign has a, there's a definition for this. A sovereign is a king. 
We know what a sovereign is. We have them in the world right now. A sovereign is a king who has a certain... So um, a, a king of a particular area, he's a sovereign over that realm, and he has full control within his realm. He can bring punishment or he can bring reward. He can step in or not, but he is the sovereign. He has total sovereignty over that realm. So yeah, but God would be much better than that. Yes, words don't super mean things just because we're talking about God. The word still means the same thing. It's just that God's realm is so much greater. So instead of having a realm that's the size of a small nation, God's realm is the entire cosmos, the entire universe. God is in control. And so the definition still remains. He is sovereign. He can step in when he wants. He can dole out rewards. He can dole out punishments. He can do whatever he wants. And the Bible says he can do whatever he wants and he does as he pleases. But to then say he's more sovereign if he determines every movement of every molecule, no, he's not. Because now you've moved categories from what he is, he is sovereign, to how he exercises that sovereignty. And those are two completely separate issues. Both Calvinists and Molinists and whatever else, we all think that God is as sovereign as he can be. He's maximally sovereign. The difference we have is how he exercises that sovereignty, and I think that's worth mentioning. Thank you. I have, I've said that so many times. I'm like, well, no, no, we don't. We don't disagree on sovereignty. We just disagree on how he executes that right. sovereignty. That's right. uh, um, and you know, I, I would say, like, if you're talking about the complexity and power of God, I would say for God to be able to still give me free will and still make His will happen makes. I mean, it would take an ultimate strategy. So, I mean, we've all loved watching crime shows where it's like the super, like Sherlock Holmes, right? He's so brilliant. He can think ahead of the criminal and he. He can still figure out a way. You're like, wow, what a brilliant mind. How did he even know any of that? And it's like, well, doesn't God just do that on a maximal level? Like, right. it's yeah. so, yeah, that's, yeah, he's sovereign and he is all knowing. This is what, and again, all knowing seems kind of redundant if he just predetermines everything. It's not so much he's all knowing, it's just he's all determined. Like, I just did it. Like, <laughs> oh, what's the point of be, having all knowledge if you are the one who determined all, the, like, you just, you know what I mean? Determine that knowledge, and that's just all there. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of all going on there. So I, I feel. So anyway, I know some people would have an issue with the way I critique that. Uh, of course, um, this that's why it's been a discussion for the past two thousand years in the church. So, uh, but um, anyway, so real quick uh, here, how? So to just kind of bring this up, we've been talking big issues, big issues, big issues, and not saying that's bad. I think it's great, and I think that's awesome, and I think we need to do that. I think it helps us answer some of these bigger questions in life. But let's bring this down to, uh, just as we close, to a thing where this helps everyone. Because our church, as you know, is very divided. The, the, the church body is very divided. That's why I started the church split, because I'm just kind of owning the fact that, yes, we're going to talk controversially. Uh, so please don't sit there and be like, you're just trying to stir the pot. Yeah, I own it in the name. Okay. Calm down. But I've been accused as a pastor quite a bit, but it's like, no, I want to have conversations. I want to have conversations with people I agree with and conversations with people I disagree with. I think that's, well, in fact, we have a, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with the channel? God is gray. Um, it's more yeah. of a liberal Christian channel. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Okay. We're having a conversation with her Wednesday because we did a rebuttal video, and now we're having a conversation with her uh, about this. Wow. And I'm pretty excited about it. Um, and she's yeah, nice. I'm going to watch that. 
Oh, okay, yeah, great. Uh, she seems really nice, uh, but I think we disagree on a lot of things. But anyway, as, but the church is so divided. And be, and I think one of the reasons why is because we all have our own little flags and we stick it in the ground. We refuse to have conversations and we get really defensive about it. So let me ask you this. How do you feel your approach to evangelism and apologetics can help unite the church? Yeah, so a couple of things there. First of all, there is a great book that every Christian, not every Christian professional minister, every Christian should read called The Great Evangelical Recession. And it, because it is describing what is happening with the, um, the American church right now, but it would probably be true in the Western church in general. And it's, it, it's describing how bad things really are. Now, fortunately, um, what we're seeing is a decrease in the mainline denominations, but not uh, necessarily much of a decrease in evangelicalism in general. A lot of people are going to denominational churches and all those kind of things. So the, the old line denominations are, are shrinking away, but, the, but evangelicalism is holding its own as the population grows. But we're still facing some serious problems. And one of the things that book points out is that um, looking at the next several years, and I, you know, you're a pastor, so this, this I hate to say this, but according to this book, and and he lays out all the evidence, is that you need to get used to functioning on um, a much smaller percentage of your budget than than what you get right now, because we, as older people who are you know the givers are dying off, you know, we're left with younger people who don't have as much money and aren't inclined to give like they once were, and so it's not that this is all about money; it's just that. Th- in, in general, we're, we're facing a serious issue in, in the modern West. So with people like me and you who are seeing what's going on with atheism, um, we're listening to atheists talking about, oh, you Christians, you just worship your sky daddy and all this sort of thing, and saying that we're all bigots because of our perspectives on human sexuality and all these kind of things. And yet then we go into church and we hear everybody arguing about these secondary doctrinal issues. I'm thinking to myself, you guys are rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. It is time to get serious about this. And it may not be as drastic as that, but it's, but it's also more like that than we would like it to be. And so what we could focus on as churches is to say, okay, look, the culture is asking questions. In the 20th century in the United States, this wasn't as much of an issue as it is now. We still had unbelievers. We still had lost people. But, those, but most of the people in your community— um, they still believed basically that it was true. They just hadn't repented, right? They they knew there were atheists. I mean, they knew what atheists were. Those people are off in godless New York or something, but not in my community. And I mean, it, this was kind of a cultural, Christianity was like a cultural thing. And so people got saved. People would hold revivals and people would come and accept Christ. But they were, but these were not people that came to believe it was true a lot of the time. These were people that already intellectually believed it was true, but hadn't, they had believed in, but they hadn't believed on Christ, you know? And so, uh, but, but so apologetics became a thing of the past, but what we're experiencing now is more like the first century to whom Peter was writing in first Peter, where you have a multiplicity of religions and we have people who are not, you know, claiming not to be religious in any way. They don't believe in anything supernatural. And so we need to remember what Peter said that the church has now forgotten and pick it up and go with it. Now, my D-Men major writing project was on, as I said, discipleship and apologetics. And what I did was empirical research. I went to a church I'd never been to before. There was a moderately sized church. Um, and we had older people and younger people from 20, I think it was like 23 was the youngest on up to, I think the oldest person was in the mid 80s. 
and men and women, and I gave them a pre-test and a post-test. And the point of it was I wanted to find out what is their confidence level in using apologetics and having these kind of conversations and their competency, how well can they do it? And what the goal of us, I did an eight-hour seminar and at the, over two, three days, and the goal was to see if we could increase their confidence in having these kind of discussions and their ability to do it successfully, not with unbelievers, but with professing believers in their congregation who they know who are experiencing worldview doubt. And so, um, in fact, I'm looking at my dissertation on the floor. It's too far away for me to grab it, but that's what it was about. So what I did was a pretest that I asked them 10 questions. And then at the end of the seminar, I asked them the same 10 questions, scale of one to five based on each question. And we did see a dramatic increase. And what we found was that, th th that when you have doubting believers, people are, you know, the people that are most confident in having wor worldview discussions are older men, the oldest category of men, and the middle-aged women. And I thought that was an interesting thing. I didn't expect that. But even these people that don't know apologetics, because the people who had the greatest prior knowledge of apologetics were younger men and women, men more than women, younger men and women. But the people who were already most willing to have those conversations before we did the seminar were the oldest men and middle-aged women. Now, as I thought about it, it made more sense. The oldest men came from the generations that were um, more you know, bombastic, more ready to talk about whatever anytime. The middle-aged women were women who were really experiencing the, um, you know, the, the the women's empowerment stuff as it was happening, right? Um, so I think my theory that those women more inclined to let's just talk about it, let's get it all out. You know, what I came up with in the end of this, my advice to church people was: look, if you've got a person who's experiencing worldview doubt in your church, I think that you should you. You should take a couple of people who have learned some apologetics. If it's a young man, get um, an, get a, another young man and an older man. If it's uh, if it's a, a young woman, get a middle-aged woman and a younger woman. Um, if it's an older woman, get an older woman and a younger woman. Right, a middle-aged woman and a younger woman, because the younger folks are more willing to are more capable of having the discussions. And the middle-aged women and older men are more ready to have the conversation because the younger folks are more timid and, and uh, you know, scared to talk about controversial stuff. And there's a pairing there that can happen. So I think that we need to urge people to have these conversations because we can stop the bleed that I think is happening. And there's a way to do it in partnerships like that. Now, I'm going to publish this all as a book, hopefully next year. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can find a publisher for that. So I think that that all works. Now, again, I know I've talked a lot. So let me just say this. The problem with getting people to have these conversations is when we, back when we, if we're just trying to get people to do evangelism at all or discipleship at all, people are scared they won't be able to do it. And they're scared they're going to say something wrong and confirm someone in whatever belief. Same with apologetics. People are afraid they can't do it. And they're afraid they're going to confirm someone in their unbelief. So we're taking two things that they think they can't do, and we're putting them together and say, do you think you can do this? Well, they're terrified of that. So I think, number one, getting them to do it in the church context will be more successful than trying to get them to go out and do evangelism immediately, although that should be the goal um, to get there. But secondly, they're scared to do it because they, um, and this thing, 
what we found was they are people, even in Baptist churches, where there's this belief in eternal security, where you, you're not going to lose your salvation, you're not going to abandon your salvation, that's not what's going on. The people in the pew, as you and I know, still think that way. I went out and committed some terrible sin. What if I'm not saved anymore? And they also think that way when they start to experience doubt, and everyone experiences doubt. It's one of the enemy's favorite tactics. So if you're encouraging people in your church to have worldview conversations with people that are experiencing doubt or don't believe, there's an issue of survival there for your church people, whether they've realized it or not. What if that person says something that makes me doubt, and then what happens to my salvation? So we've got to, number one, reaffirm your security in Christ and, and also affirm they can do this and they need to learn to do this. And that way we can bring it together, forget the secondary doctrinal stuff, in, encouraging them that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, the church is in trouble, and you're arguing about these secondary issues. In that way, I think we can unite around apologetics, and I, and I think that, that we can start a ministry there that could be really effective. So that's kind of what I think. Amen, man. That was and that's exactly what I said because I growing up IFB man, I was hearing all the time like, you know, if they don't dress like this, if they have music drums in, in their and I just kept I'm like, my goodness, guys, this is how we lose. This is how Christianity dies in the West is if when we major on these minors and instead of focusing on the power that is the gospel and the power of the resurrection and the evidences of God and who, his love for us, this is how, if we do not focus on these big things and instead we want to keep fighting on all these little areas, we are going to lose. And it's, and it's because, you know, it, uh, Ravi Zacharias, he was the guy who first got me to apologetics. I, I heard him speak and I was just like, this was amazing, and my brain grew ten sizes. But like he made such a good point, you know, the way the horses fight is they turn, they face each other, and they kick outward when they're attacked by a threat. But then was it donkeys or whatever they they do the opposite? They kick, they face the enemy, and then they kick each other to death. And I was like, that is exactly what's happening to the church. Is that, you know, instead of uniting around the similarities, we're we're fighting over these little areas. And it's like, guys, are we here to save souls, or are we here to sit there and go, I was absolutely right about speaking in tongues, like. I feel like in the in the grand scheme of things, that's not going to be what what wins. So uh, I really, and, really, you know, what's weird. What's what's weird about this is if you go to small town America back in say 1950, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, that they would all come together for evangelistic events and community events. Um, you, you so it's odd now that it's even hotter in America that that we're now within the same church, you know, at each other's throats. I, we've got to, we've got to get people. So churches should come up with the list of non-negotiables that they hold, and they ought to be darn uh, certain that they're honoring Christ and coming up with that list of things that they're not going to um, equivocate on. And then within the church, if somebody starts making a beef or, or trying to divide the church over things that aren't in that list, we need to shut that down real quick because we've got to, We've got to unify, and I think you you asked a great question with that that I'm still trying to answer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as a guy who's experienced uh, and have seen a grand total of four splits, uh, I've, I've either witnessed it or been the pastor of it, and maybe not at the same church. This church has been through two. Uh, the church I was at beforehand split, but it was always like sexual abuse situation. But anyway, that was a fun. I was the whistleblower on that. That was a good time. Good times there, Braxton. Wow. <laughs> 
when it comes down to it, like it's like there's all these great, there's these fundamental issues. You know, the the salvation through Christ alone, who the deity of Jesus Christ. These are like central things, the inspiration of Scripture, absolutely. But there's the thing is, there's a lot of wiggle room in between. And instead, when your brother offends you, what is you know Matthew 18 and all these Galatians 6 1, go restore them, or maybe go, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be such a, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so bullheaded about it, or oh, well, they made a mistake, or I didn't approve of that. Okay, well, great. Uh, if and I always ask people, what if somebody treated you with the same grace that you are treating them? You know, and in the church, if you messed up, would you want some people to just go, well, I'm done fellowshipping with you? No, you want people to forgive you. So return that. And I, so apologetics really does bring it together. And that's when I really started, when I started studying apologetics, I started going, wait, we fight over some of these small things, but this here is where the gospel it makes its strides is learning to reason with one another and focusing on that resurrection. Now we can talk about methodology. Sure. That's great. But as long as we are all working on that same team to bring that gospel, I'm on your side. You know, uh, I saw a friend of mine recently posted re d dealing with the church closings with COVID and they were like, you know, uh, open, closed, online, not online. If you preach Jesus Christ, I'm on your side. And I was like, Amen. thank you. Like it was, yeah. and it's so refreshing to see. So I do see that there's uh, this uh, in Christian, I've noticed Christian philosophy and apologetics seems to be on a rise, which I think is just an answer. I think it's the answer to the call. Apologists are naturally answering the call where they're starting to see this falling away and apologists are going, no, we've got to fight this tide back, which is why I'm noticing that there's this internet tide, myself included, being one of the people who jumped on, going, no, we need to start having a response. Uh, we need to have biblical responses to the weird biblical questions that people always ask. And then we also need to start bringing apologists as to why Christianity is true. And to put a little capturing Christianity thing, and by the way, Christianity <laughs> is true. It's a great tagline, kind of jelly he has it, but. Anyway, uh, so anyway, um, so for those of people who want us, our final question real quick, and this doesn't have to be long, where do you think uh, apologetics, people who want to get involved in apologetics, where do you think is a great place to start? Um, you know, if you have absolutely no awareness of it at all, like no, no understanding of what's going on, um, you know, I think a good place to start is the resurrection, as I said, and for that, many people. Many people have begun their journey into apologetics with Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. And I think that is a great way to start. You can get excited about it. There's a movie about it. You know, all those sorts of things are there. And, and that's great. That'll get you excited. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to push my channel when I'm on your channel, but, but I created a couple of playlists on my YouTube channel. Uh, I have a playlist for God's existence and a playlist for the resurrection. And you can just kind of get little short videos there and some long videos kind of familiarizing you. Um, there's a there's a great book that Norman Geisler died uh, last is this year last last year, and he had a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Such and a good that book. Is, that is a good book to familiarize yourself with what's up with what's going on, and so I, I'd recommend that. That those are all good places to start. And if you already are um, getting excited about apologetics. You know, there's a website that used to be much more popular than I think it is now, but um, it's 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 getting it's getting there again, and it's apologetics315.org. I think it's .org, apologetics315, and uh, they have on, on the left hand side of the screen alphabetized every author, every apologist, every topic that you can possibly imagine. It's all free, videos, blog articles, book reviews, everything. And when I was, uh, you know, let's say ten years ago. 
Um, I was every time I go to work out, I would go to Apologetics 315, get a get a, a debate or a, a lecture, and listen to that. That's a good place to go as well. So I think those could be helpful. Oh, that is awesome! Uh, Apologetics 315. That's fantastic. I'll I'll do that too because I I, list, I listened I listened to your Dillahunty debate while I was doing a run at the gym. So um, it's a really long run. Cool. It was exhausting. But yeah, uh, so no, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, and I think this is a great place for people to start. I think this conversation was uh, you know on my content tends to be kind of longer in general. I think the shortest video I literally have is my intro video, which is six minutes. The rest are like generally like thirty minutes or more. So um, but I think that's where you get the meat of things. Obviously, I think there's a top place for the little ones, but I'm like, I, I wanted to get to deal with some of these thick, big, fat issues. So with that being said, uh, I really appreciate your candor. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for taking the time out to come here. Uh, and I really appreciate your heart for Christ and just keep doing the good work, man. You're doing great. Uh, uh, you get people who get sassy with you on Twitter. I enjoy watching the dumpster fire. Uh, I usually just watch from afar, although today I did respond. You were helping me out today a little bit. I appreciate that. (laughs) And hey, I wanted to tell you, um, I appreciate what you're doing here because my channel is more specifically um, apologetics toward atheists these days, but you're doing pastoral ministry and including practical uh, stuff like that with apologetics. And we need that. In a lot of ways, that's far more important. And so you're doing a great job. Your encouragement to me helps a lot. And I just pray that God grows this channel and that you can have one of the big channels doing ministry like this on YouTube. It's actually kind of terrifying to think about. Uh, our, we have one video with like 17,000 views now. When you look up Marty Sampson, we're like wow. the second person. And I'm like, that many people have seen my face. And I'm not sure how I feel about <laughs> that yet. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, but I mean, that's the thing is I, I mean, I'm a pastor at heart. Um, but at the same time, I'm a truth seeker and I don't like to pull punches. So I want to have these conversations and I want to be a pastor. But at the same time, no, the, the, these two areas, the Bible and philosophy and the, and the battleground in which they take place uh, need to be combined, they need to be in the middle, and they need to work together. So I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and for the audience, go ahead, follow Braxton Hunter at Trinity Radio. Fantastic. I know so I've recommended a few times people don't really necessarily always know who I'm talking about. So Trinity Radio, go follow him, like, sub, do all that. Check out his videos. It's fantastic. Braxton, thank you for the time, and this has been The Church Split.